Welcome to this uh, fourth annual lecture in Hispanic Latino Theology and Missions. Uh, let me tell you uh, just a little bit about the purpose of the annual lecture. The purpose is to raise awareness and educate the seminary community and the general public on issues that affect Latino communities and on the contributions of Latinos and others to the shape of the church's task in such contexts. Previous lectures have focused on the shape of the church's mission as, as she seeks to engage creatively realities and issues such as immigration, marginality, and contextualization. Tonight, our guest speaker will deal with the theme of leadership. We are thrilled to have Dr. Agosto in our midst. Efrain Agosto is Dean, Professor of New Testament, and Director of Hispanic Ministry Programs at Hartford Seminary in Connecticut. He was born and raised in New York City. His parents came to New York from Puerto Rico in the 1950s. He attended New York City public schools and received his BA from Columbia University in 1977, his MD from Garden Conwell Theological Seminary in 1982, and his PhD from Boston University Graduate School in 1995. He went to Hartford Seminary in July of 1995 after serving on the staff of the Center for Urban Ministerial Education in Boston for 12 years, from 1983 to 1985. The last five years as director of this inner city urban theological education program, a campus of Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. He was nurtured in New York Hispanic Pentecostal churches, where he has served in various pastoral leadership roles over the years. He has been a mentor for the Hispanic Theological Initiative, an organization funded by the Pew Charitable Trust and housed at Princeton Seminary to develop Latino and Latina doctoral candidates in religion and theology. I myself, are a part, uh, I'm a part of that program. Efrain has also served on the executive committee of the ATS, the Association of Theological Schools. In the field of New Testament studies, Efrain Agosto teaches, researches, and writes on the Pauline epistles, especially the leadership and ministry of Paul and others in these communities. His book, Servant Leadership, Jesus and Paul, was published by Chalice Press in 2005. It studies the social status, practices, and theology of leaders in the earliest Christian communities, including the Jesus Movement and Pauline Christianity. So, as a contribution to our ongoing reflection on Paul during this year of St. Paul, and also as a contribution to theology and practice of leadership, not only for Latinos, but for the whole church, Dr. Agosto's lecture tonight is appropriately entitled Leadership in Paul and His Communities, Theology and Practice. Please help me welcome Dr. Efrain Agosto. 
Good evening. Well, I was sitting there for a few minutes before you all came in, and now the auditorium is filled out very nicely. I'm very happy. I'm thankful to God and to uh, Professor Leo Sanchez, to Dean Schumacher, for this invitation to be here with you uh, for the fourth annual lecture in Hispanic Latino Theology and Missions. I want to thank Leo for uh, his hospitality and that of his family. I've thoroughly enjoyed being with Tracy and Lucas and Ana these last few nights that I've been staying on campus. I've enjoyed your beautiful campus, walking around, seeing the library, the bookstore, as well as having a little office next to Leo there in one of the buildings. So I'm very thankful for the hospitality that all of you have shared with, with me. As someone who has worked in Latino-Hispanic ministries for many years now, I'm quite impressed with the work that you all are doing in Latino uh, in the Center for Hispanic Ministries. I congratulate you on that. Congratulate Leo and the deans who have uh, helped to put this uh, program together. A mis hermanos y mis hermanas latinos y latinas en el programa hispano aquí, les felicito por su ministerio, por sus estudios. Uh, espero que esta ponencia esta noche sobre el liderazgo en Pablo sea útil a ustedes. Eh, sé que va a ser en inglés, pero yo creo que hay unos textos, copia de los textos que vamos a discutir en español y espero que puedan seguir más o menos lo que voy a exponer en esta noche. So, uh, uh, there is a, a handout with uh, the text that I'll be discussing this evening as well as you can see it on the screen as well as listen uh, to what I share with you. Tonight I'd like to present some of my work on leadership in Paul and his communities, including some discussion of, of Pauline theology around the issues of leadership, as well as the practices developed around leaders and leadership in his uh, congregations. In the opening pages of the book that Leo mentioned, uh, Servant Leadership, I wrote the following that I'd like to share with you uh, at the outset. The motivations for this study are twofold. First, as a Puerto Rican raised in New York City, I know persons, especially in the storefront Pentecostal churches of my youth, who lack access to traditional opportunities for training and leadership. Nonetheless, they exercise significant leadership roles within the Latino Christian Church, as well as other community institutions of the city. After seminary, I began to work on the theological education of such individuals, and I also pursued graduate studies in New Testament. I became intrigued by the question, is there a biblical perspective relative to the issue of access to and opportunity for leadership? Thus, in my graduate studies and beyond, I have explored the question of who became leaders in the churches founded by Paul and what was the social status of those leaders with respect to the strict hierarchical um, social structure of Greco-Roman society. I hoped to make a theological, biblical contribution to the work of urban theological education, including the preparation of Latino, Latina church leaders in our communities. I strongly believe that such a motivation and line of inquiry contributes to leadership issues in churches of all ethnic groups, races, and denominations. So as you can see, I've been thinking about these issues uh, for a long time. 
The passage reflects my motivations for pursuing study on leadership in the New Testament and the connections of that study to the Hispanic Latino church and community. So I'm honored to be offering this lecture in the context of the Hispanic Latino Studies Program at Concordia Seminary in this, the year of Paul. Now let me offer some preliminary considerations about Paul and leadership. Although Paul's ministry takes place in the overall climate of Roman imperial hegemony in which Jesus too carries out his ministry, there are, of course, significant distinctions. Paul, along with others, takes the Jesus movement beyond its immediate beginnings in Israel into the large areas of the empire. In particular, Paul engages a strategy in which he will preach the good news about Jesus the Christ and establish Christian communities in major cities of the empire, including such places as Thessalonica, Philippi, Corinth, Ephesus, and Colossae. He also expects to visit, after completing his ministry in, Eastern, in the Eastern Mediterranean, the capital of the empire, the city of Rome, in order for the churches there to finance his mission trip west to Spain, as we read in Romans 15, 23 and following. Thus Paul strategically employs all the benefits of the Roman imperial hegemony, good roads with military security, prosperous cities, individuals with financial means, all to support and enhance his Christian gospel mission, although many who join the movement are among what Jesus called the least of these in the empire. Second, like Jesus, Paul does not go about his mission alone. He too surrounds himself with a group of associates whom he regularly calls, as we know, co-workers and upon whom he depends in order to help nurture, lead, and instruct the congregations that he has founded. In a moment, I'm going to turn to a brief study of the qualities that Paul expects from his leaders, qualities that will show that he does not rely on the typical Greco-Roman expectations of leaders in terms of class and status in order to select and endorse his associates. Rather like Jesus, Paul selects and endorses leaders from among those whom he serves, regardless of social status. He expects them, as he does of himself, to selflessly serve the Pauline congregations, even to the point of sacrifice and risk. Thirdly, in these preliminary considerations, Paul's leadership is carried out on the basis of an apostolic calling to take the gospel 
to places and to people where it has not taken root before. This is my thumbnail sketch of apostleship. The apostle is one sent where no one has gone before with good news. I should add that I believe apostolic ministry today, as then, is or should be similarly missional and groundbreaking. In order to be consistent with the biblical witness, especially Paul. In addition, Paul's pastoral ministry is exercised through letter writing. Although sometimes he makes personal visits or sends his envoys, in, in, in fact, sometimes a letter will work better than a personal visit, and sometimes an envoy will work better than a visit by Paul. See Titus in 2 Corinthians. Finally, a word about Paul's theology in general. It is forged in the heat of pastoral ministry to his assemblies. J. Christian Becker showed us almost three decades ago, it's hard to talk about 1980 as three decades ago, but it, that's what it is. He showed us that Paul's coherent theology, whether justification, reconciliation, eschatology, or all of the above, this coherent core theology in Paul is embedded in his letters as he responds to the contingent situation of his congregations. Thus many Pauline scholars, myself included, consider Paul a praxis theologian. That is, his theology is pastoral and contextual rather than systematic and abstract. We, of course, categorize and systematize. Paul contextualized his theology to the needs of his community. We only have Paul's theology, as stated in the letters, in context and not as an abstract compendium of ideas. Therefore, his theology of leadership, to whatever extent we can discern it, must be constructed and understood as a function of engagement with communities. So, in what follows, I will briefly explore what Paul seems to believe and expects of himself with regard to gospel leadership and the leadership qualities needed for his gospel communities. Then I want to discuss what Paul expects of his associates and his co-workers with regard to their leadership. I will also outline some of the ultimate goals of Paul's leadership before outlining the implications, some implications for religious leadership in times of crisis today. It sounds like a lot, but I think we're going to move through it. Let's look at some text around statements that Paul shares about his own leadership. Paul alludes to the nature of leadership in a variety of places. Early in his ministry, he found himself defending 
the integrity of the Pauline mission. He writes to the Thessalonians as follows. You yourselves know, brothers and sisters, that our coming to you is not in vain, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully mistreated in Philippi, we had the courage to declare to you the gospel of God. Thus our appeal does not spring from deceit or impure motives or trickery, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the message of the gospel, even so we speak, not to please mortals, but to please God who tests our hearts. Several factors stand out in this passage. First, Paul and his missionary associates were willing to suffer on behalf of the gospel mission. Paul expects his leaders to confront mistreatment if they have to on behalf of the gospel with courage and integrity. No one, we must add, not Paul, not his associates, not us, seeks to suffer. For we all recognize that it's the cost of doing business on behalf of the Lord. Certainly, Paul understood that. And integrity represents the main emphasis in this particular passage. Neither deceit, impure motives, or trickery motivates the missionary enterprise, but rather the desire to serve God's people. Ultimately, God motivates the missionary enterprise, not personal gain or greed. The passage goes on to share about the love that the missionaries had for their constituents in Thessalonica. Paul ministered to them like a wet nurse caring for her own children. And that beautiful maternal imagery in 1 Thessalonians 2, 7. Paul also indicates that not wanting to be a financial burden to this community, he worked at manual labor. So early in Paul's ministry then, the issues of suffering, of integrity, and finances confronted his missionary efforts and therefore demanded a defense, which he does here in 1 Thessalonians, most likely his earliest extant letter. But how does Paul define leadership besides defending it? And perhaps it's the Corinthian correspondence that gives us some of our best answers to that question. First of all, the Corinthians needed to understand the gospel leadership must be defined in terms of both human humility and divine power. In the second chapter of 1 Corinthians, we read, When I came to you, brothers and sisters, I did not come proclaiming the mystery of God to you in lofty words of wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. My speech, my proclamation were not with, with plausible words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of spirit and power so that your faith might not rest in human wisdom, but on the power of God. And we all know much of the background 
behind this debate that Paul had with some in Corinth. But here he shows that if the power of God and not just human ability did not lie behind Paul's missionary efforts, the enterprise would fail. The gospel leader must be willing to exercise cruciformity, following Christ even to the point of suffering for the cause of the good news of God. Such an attitude entails humility and ultimately ultimate reliance on divine power, especially when times are tough. Of course, that's not everyone's vision for leadership in Paul's congregations. Excuse me a moment, I misplaced the page. Give me, there it is. Difficulties, as some in Corinth seem to believe, are not the sign of weakness or failed leadership. They saw in Paul a failed leader because of the signs of weakness. Rather, Paul argues, it is how one responds to crisis with faith, hope, and love that often demonstrates one's leadership calling and capacity. So Paul goes on after this passage in 1 Corinthians 2 to define leadership in terms of servanthood, much like Jesus did. Just after his call for humility in 1 Corinthians 2, Paul describes the nature of gospel leadership this way. What then is Paul? What then is Apollos? Servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Paul affirms the divine role in gospel leadership. The gospel leaders as servants of God each have roles to play in the gospel mission, but it's God who gives the growth. Reward for gospel service depends not on who is on top, but on who carries out his or her role according to the common purpose, that is, the gospel mission. This vision represents a somewhat upside-down expectation for leadership compared to the hierarchy of Roman imperial society in which Paul's congregations are embedded. Nonetheless, an upside-down leadership with God at the top and everyone else equal servants of God's divine purpose, albeit in different roles, this kind of vision functioned as the modus operandi in Paul's vision of leadership for his congregations and the gospel mission, at least as we can discern it in reading Paul's uncontested letters to places like Thessalonica, Corinth, and Philippi. And as I was saying before, 
Not everyone's vision for leadership is this one in Paul's congregations. Some in Corinth sought social enhancement out of their role as leaders in the Corinthian congregation. And Paul responds to them with dripping irony. Already, you have all you want. Already, you have become rich. Quite apart from us, you have become kings. Indeed, I wish you had become kings so that we might be kings with you. Paul seeks to mollify the search for glory that some in Corinth have by citing apostolic suffering. And we see in the rest of this text one of the many hardship lists, list of apostolic sufferings that Paul includes throughout the Corinthian correspondence. He's counteracting an overly glorified vision of gospel leadership by a core group of leaders in the Corinthian congregation. They think Paul, Paul's hard times are indication of weak leadership. But Paul counters several times throughout this correspondence that hardships are part and parcel of gospel leadership. This is a brief overview of various statements by Paul about leadership. We must conclude that he depended on God for his assignment as an apostle and a missionary. That suffering and cruciformity was an integral part of the nature of his leadership on behalf of his gospel communities. And that his love and concern for these communities overruled any personal gains or interest that he or any gospel leader might seek from such an assignment. For Paul, gospel leadership was about service, even if that service entailed suffering, hard labor, and criticism from those who misunderstood the nature of the ministry. This ministry may not bring earthly glory, but satisfaction was derived from knowing one was responding to God's call serving with God's power and rewarded with a viable, thriving gospel community. These, then, are some of the building blocks of a Pauline theology of leadership. More could be said. I recommend to you Andrew Clark, A Theology of Pauline Leadership, a recent book published uh, that I'm reviewing for uh, one of our journals at Hartford Seminary. But lots more could be said. What I want to turn to now in the second and final part of my presentation is what does Paul expect from his leaders and what do we garner from that in uh, his letters? Paul expected no less from those who served with him and those who emerged into leadership from among the constituents of his congregations. In all but one of Paul's uncontested letters, Galatians, he commends local leaders and or his associates to his congregations. 
these commendation passages. Like similar commendations in the Greco-Roman world provide a window into the qualities that Paul expected of his church leaders. And they very much parallel what Paul states about leadership and what he expects of his own leadership. In commending local leaders, Paul focuses on their hard work and service for the church. To the young, struggling Thessalonian congregation, he writes about work, something that we're all very familiar with. We appeal to you, brothers and sisters, to respect those who labor among you and have charge of you in the Lord and admonish you. Esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Local church leaders in Thessalonica had proven their leadership skills by means of their hard labor, admonishment, and work in the congregation over a period of time. Therefore, they should be recognized for what they are already doing. This is not leadership ex nihilo, rather leadership recognition, according to Paul, comes from having a track record. Similarly, when Paul seeks out loyal leaders in the turmoil that is the Corinthian situation, he turns to a proven commodity. Stephanus and others in his household have from the very beginning demonstrated their loyalty to Paul and the gospel by means of their service to the gospel community in Corinth. Paul writes about Stephanus at the end of 1 Corinthians. Now, brothers and sisters, you know that members of the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia. They had devoted themselves to the service of the saints. I urge you to put yourselves at the service of such people and of everyone who works and toils with them. He goes on to talk about Stephanus' ministry, not just to the local congregation in Corinth, but to Paul himself. Leadership recognition for Stephanus and the others depends on their devoted service to the local gospel community and to the service to Paul and the gospel mission. Paul says, they refreshed my spirit. In turn, the gospel community should serve these leaders for their service to Paul and the community and the gospel. In fact, anyone who puts themselves at the service of the church ought to be recognized as leaders in the community. This is a way that Paul opens up the avenues of leadership to many of his congregations. In effect, he says, follow the example of these faithful servants of God, and you too may become a leader in God's community. So Paul commends local leaders, Thessalonica and Corinth. But he also commends his immediate associates and envoys that travel on his behalf. He mentions the risk that associates and envoys often take in traveling on behalf of the gospel mission. There is the great passage about Epaphroditus in Philippians chapter 2, where it talks about how Epaphroditus had been sent from Philippi to Paul during one of Paul's imprisonments. He says, he was indeed so ill 
that he nearly died because of this trip that he had taken. But God had mercy on him. Not only on him, but on me also, writes Paul. So that I would not have one sorrow imprisonment after another, the death of a beloved associate. I am the more eager to send them in order that you may rejoice at seeing him and I may be less anxious. Welcome, Epaphroditus, in the Lord with all joy and honor such people. Again, Paul extends the commendation and the recognition beyond the person he's talking about to say, honor such people because Epaphroditus came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up for those services that you yourselves could not give me because you all couldn't come to my imprisonment site. Epaphroditus' willingness to serve despite illness demonstrated his commitment to the gospel mission. He deserved to be recognized and honored for his leadership. He showed his love and commitment to the community by being more worried about their concern for him than about the illness itself. We read in this passage in verse 26. In one of my favorite passages of all scripture, we read in 2 Corinthians about Paul sending a group of envoys who are traveling to Corinth to take care of one of his, Paul's most important ministries, the monetary collection for the church in Jerusalem. The collection team includes Titus, one of Paul's closest associates. Paul says this about Titus. Thanks be to God, who put in the heart of Titus the same eagerness for you that I have myself. For he not only accepted our appeal, he is more eager than ever. He's going to you on his own accord. Titus shows singular concern for the well-being of this gospel community and does so with enthusiasm. He, along with two other members of the Pauline team, will travel to Corinth after Titus has been able to secure a reconciled relationship between Paul and the Corinthians in order to accomplish this mission of the collection for Jerusalem. In short, whether immediate associates and co-workers of Paul or envoys sent by his churches, all these leaders share a common commitment to the gospel the gospel community, and the specific expression and activity of that gospel in the Pauline mission. There are two more passages I'd like to share with you before we move toward closing this evening. The Pauline mission, including various women leaders that Paul also commended at critical points in his letters. When the Philippian church needs examples of good leaders who will follow Paul's injunction in chapter 1 to live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, Philippians 1.27, Paul cites Jesus 
who emptied himself as a servant, himself who poured himself out as a libation, Timothy who serves with Paul like a son with a father, and Epaphroditus who got ill as we read. All of these examples are models for the Philippians to follow in terms of living a life in a manner worthy of the gospel. But these models and this call toward unity could be endangered by the separation or the disagreement from two additional leaders in the Philippian situation. So Paul writes the following. I urge Judea and I urge Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you also, my loyal companion, help these women for they have struggled beside me in the work of the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Paul cannot ask the church of Philippi to stand firm in one spirit, striving side by side with one mind for the faith of the gospel if two good examples of that spirit in the past, Judea and Syntyche, who have struggled beside Paul, in the work of the gospel, 4.3, are not currently seeing eye to eye. Thus Paul commends their past leadership and calls for the help of another local leader to bring about their reconciliation and unity. Similarly, Paul commends another Christian woman to the Roman Christians. And her role could be very critical to Paul's intentions in writing his letter to the community of the Roman churches. We read it at the end of the Roman letter. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon or diaconas, servant of the church at Sancria, so that you may welcome her in the Lord as is fitting for the saints and help her in whatever she may require from you. For she has been a benefactor a prostatis of many and of myself as well. Romans 16, 1 and 2. Phoebe has exercised a leadership role in a local congregation near Corinth, the port town of St. Paul calls her diaconas, that same term he uses for himself and Apollos in 1 Corinthians 3, 5. Thus she has all that important quality, that all important quality in the Pauline mission service for the gospel community. Second, Paul also refers to her as a benefactor or patroness, prostatis, of many, including Paul, which probably means she has provided financial support for the mission. Phoebe's role has been critical in the Pauline mission on several fronts. She exercises leadership in local congregation. She has financially supported Paul and the gospel mission. And now it seems that she may very well be carrying the Roman letter to the Roman churches, whose leaders Paul greets immediately after this text in Romans 16, 3 to 16. Paul needs the support 
of all of these leaders, of all of these Roman churches in the mission to Spain. And so Phoebe may very well have had an important advanced role to play in Paul's new venture, both to clarify any points of theology in the letter that she shared, that she carries, the letter to the Romans, as well as to prepare the Roman Christians to support as one the Spanish mission. Thus Paul enthusiastically commends her, welcome her in the Lord as is fitting for the saints, and help her in whatever way she may require from you. Paul commends leaders who follow many of the lessons he himself has learned about the gospel mission. These lessons include the gospel leadership must entail singular attention to the welfare of gospel communities, especially those in the Pauline mission, but not exclusively. Paul is very concerned for the well-being of the Jerusalem church and organizes a collection for it. But in every case, as we read these and other commendations, he expects service and hard work from the good gospel leader. Well, I want to take us to the final part of my presentation, which is why? Why does Paul do all this? <laughs> I think there are three main reasons. He expects his leaders to follow the example of Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live in the flesh by the faith in the Son of God. There is, once again, an expectation that leaders will be cruciform. They will follow the example of Christ in their exercise of leadership. There's a second reason, I think, and that is this marvelous passage about reconciliation. Paul writes, this new creation that God has made in, in you, dear Corinthians, is all from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to God's self, not counting the world's trespasses against them, entrusting the message of reconciliation to us so we are ambassadors for Christ since God is making God's appeal through us. Paul expects his leaders to understand that their ministry is to represent what God has done in and through Christ. God has restored right relationships between us and our Creator. We too, as ambassadors for Christ, exercise a leadership, through our leadership, the ministry of reconciliation, bringing divided parties together in peace. 
And finally, Paul expects his leaders to lead because they are giving, we are giving God our best. Finally, beloved, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is pleasing, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Gospel leaders should serve gospel communities in the way that Paul admonishes because in that way we give God our best. We not only think about doing our best, but we in fact do our best so that truth, honor, and integrity can be exercised and exemplified on behalf of the gospel community by the community's leaders. Everyone, all of us, but especially our leaders, should give God the very best that we have. This is a strong theological value that Paul holds. So where does that leave us today? First of all, Paul, like Paul, religious leaders need to think through a careful strategy for carrying out our mission. Paul engaged in urban ministry strategy, and it worked in terms of establishing key assemblies at critical junctures throughout the Roman Empire. We must think carefully if we're going to respond responsibly to the moments of crisis like the ones we fa are facing now in these post 9-11 world and in these harsh economic times. Rash judgments and actions that may put aside issues of faith and justice just will not serve us well. Leaders must be strategic in our thinking. Second, we must continually ask ourselves, who will join us in the leadership task? Like Jesus, Paul surrounded himself with a band of associates, his co-workers. When he commands these leaders, as well as emerging local leaders to his congregations, he cites what they have done already for the gospel mission, whether it be hard work, sacrifice, risk-taking, like Greco, unlike Greco-Roman commendations, issues of social status, of gender, traditional qualifying criteria in the imperial society did not seem to matter as much to Paul as their proven sacrificial service to his congregations. What criteria do we expect of our leaders today? Paul did not expect from his leaders any more than what he expected of himself. We need religious leaders willing to take unpopular positions and act positively on them with courage and integrity, issues of diversity, inclusion, and hearing from voices of all walks of life are part of that firm stance. Something which Paul called for, for example, in the Corinthian situation. Thirdly, we need 
firm conviction and a sense of mission. A strategy and a sense of inclusion and then a sense of mission. Paul preached Jesus Christ and him crucified. <laughs> the simplest, clearest statement of his gospel message. He stood by that message in good times and bad times. However, the cross of Christ was not an abstract teaching. For Paul, it had practical implications. He expected that he and his leaders would live out their theology, and so gospel leadership included a willingness to sacrifice for the cause of Christ and his people. The core message also included God's reconciling act on behalf of humanity in Christ. If that was the case, how much more should our leadership engage the ministry of reconciliation and bring healing to divided parties among us? Perhaps this is the greatest lesson for Paul's leadership for our own day. The gospel cannot be gospel without the ministry of peace and reconciliation. We need more and more religious leaders who practice and promote the art of peacemaking in this troubled world. A sine qua non of gospel leadership is reconciliation. How to achieve reconciliation between divided parties in our communities and in our world. No matter how complicated it may seem, and indeed it is complicated, this must lie at the heart of our leadership activity and proclamation. May God help us to lead strategically, to lead inclusively, and to be leaders in the ministry of peacemaking and reconciliation. I hope and pray these examples of essential character of our gospel leadership gleaned from our great Apostle Paul in this year celebrating his birth, that these are helpful to us all. Thank you very much. Sure, sure. 
you noted, you noticed in my, um, everybody, every, yeah, you got a mic, everybody heard his question. You noticed in my uh, presentation I made reference to the uncontested letters of Paul. So clearly I invoked the kind of notion that there are seven letters that no one doubts in scholarship now that the living Paul was responsible for, for, for writing them. That, mean, that leaves six uh, contested letters, Colossians, Ephesians, the pastoral epistles, uh, Second Thessalonians, where folks wonder whether, for a variety of reasons, for vocabulary, style, chronology, uh, theological uh, developments, whether or not Paul, uh, the living Paul, uh, uh, wrote them. So sometimes I, I uh, put on my uh, hat that says, uh, Paul wrote Colossians, wrote Ephesians, and let's read leadership uh, in those letters. And sometimes I put on my hat, this, like I did today, and say, let's look at these uncontested letters and see what kind of leadership emerges uh, if we just stuck to those letters that nobody doubts uh, in scholarship that Paul wrote them. Now, I come from the, the position that they are all Pauline. They all reflect Pauline theology, Pauline uh, ministry, but that there has been some development, whether because Paul is no longer around and his followers are writing uh, as if, or saying, if Paul were here, this is what he would have said. Or let's take some of Paul's teachings, indeed some of all Paul's own words, in a letter like Colossians that seems, that has a lot of echoes, uh, not just echoes, but actual words that Paul could very well have written. But then a lot of things the Christology that seems to uh, uh, be a, a post-Pauline interpretation uh, of Paul's uh, Christology. So I know that there are different voices about this in probably in the audience. What I, what I try to do is accept their, 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 that they are Pauline, that they are part of the Pauline school, and then trace the distinctives, if they are any, between one set of letters, the ones we call uncontested, Corinthians, Thessalonians, Philippians, Romans, Galatians, Philemon. And what is leadership like in these letters? And I, and I argue that leadership in these letters is more fluid. You don't have the concern for, um, in First Timothy, of talking about bishops, deacons, um, elders, widows who are enrolled and are 60 years of age. A set of more specific criteria for who shall exercise leadership in the Pauline community. This is, whether Paul wrote it or not, this is another moment in my book in the history of the Pauline church. There's those kinds of issues that gets us thinking. And so sometimes I want to say, what if Paul, the living Paul, did this? Then we're talking about a development in leadership from a more fluid dependence on local leaders who exercise leadership based on service, what I've argued today, to a leadership that is becoming, slowly but surely, more dependent on prescribed positions, official positions, bishop, deacons, and the like, and um, uh, characteristics expected of each of those categories. So that's a little bit of the debate. Thank you. Thank you for the question. Thank you. Good to see you.
Great. is 
mission and his way of acting to be kind of spread out among all of the leaders that are under him for that. Great, thank you. Um, I agree with you that Paul is unique. No one else wrote the kinds of letters and uh, exercised the kind of power and ministry and authority uh, in his congregations that Paul did. Therefore, uh, that really helps the argument that I'm making, which is here is this powerful, effective leader uh, challenging others to join him in the ministry of leadership. That, yes, he is empowered uh, to be an apostle, to carry out this ministry in unique ways. He is apostolic. Not everyone is apostolic. And I hope you caught my, my uh, concern for the, uh, not, in, not in these circles here, but in other circles, back east perhaps, but I'm sure in other places, we've got uh, uh, movements and congregations uh, invoking the title of apostle in ways that are, I think, are unbiblical because of this precise definition of apostleship as this empowerment to take this gospel where no one else has taken it. So I do see in Paul this powerful uh, uh, call and ministry. And here he is. This is what I've been struck with. Here he is saying to others, uh, you, you too, can exercise important, powerful ministry. Not different, not the same as Paul, obviously, not the same in terms of the, the authority and the, uh, uh, the extent to which Paul carried out his ministry, but I don't think that, that while he, that he saw himself in any way more superhuman, but yes, with a special calling, with a special empowerment, and now he sees that he needs to carry on, this ministry to be carried on, and he needs to be sure that other leaders see that opportunity regardless of uh, where they stand in Greco-Roman society. So I think your point about this powerful, endowed leader uh, being called to this apostolic ministry that, is, that demonstrates his power by the fact that there is no other like Paul. No other letter writer survives uh, in the way, that, uh, in terms of the, the production of his letters, in the way that Paul uh, does. Nonetheless, I still maintain the point that here he is uh, inviting others to join him in the leadership of his congregations uh, and to sense that call to ministry. Uh, uh, in their own way, perhaps differently than Paul himself felt it, but nonetheless, they too can join him in this mission. So, I, I, you know, that's, that's uh, where I, how I would uh, respond to your very important uh, reminder. Other questions?
No, thank you. Yeah, that question's been, I've been challenged on that question uh, before uh, in other settings. And uh, one reviewer, James Thompson from uh, Abilene, uh, suggested something similar in terms of, uh, you know, particularly the Jesus material, but as well as Paul's material, that I was leveling out the definition of leadership and made it look more like discipleship. Uh, that was Professor Thompson's critique. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm defining leadership broadly. I'm not defining it as um, uh, leadership in a hierarchical uh, situation or leadership in terms of official positions. Uh, I don't see any of that in this stream of the Corinthian, Thessalonian, Philippian uh, material. Uh, yes, I see apostleship. Yes, I see uh, associates who work on behalf of, the, uh, of Paul and his mission. And, what I, and I, I define leadership quite broadly as those who are willing to step to the plate. Because if I have a leadership definition all right, that is based on official recognized positions as the, as the sine qua uh, uh, definition of leadership, biblical definition of leadership, then uh, we're leaving out persons that don't seem to have the official credentials, the official uh, preparation, yet they exercise leadership in quiet ways in congregations, uh, in urban situations, and uh, all over the place. I don't see at this initial stage of the Pauline mission a concern, and maybe part of it is the eschatology of the imminent return of Christ. But I don't see a concern for a, um, a, a, an establishment of some kind of succession system. I see the urgency of the parousia moving Paul in his apostolic calling to gather folks. Are you willing to step to the plate, to step out for this gospel, and exercise leadership, exercise not authorized, position-based leadership, but a leadership that says, I will be out front, I will take a position to help my community. Yes, please. If I could follow up, I'm curious if you would include within your Pauline corpus the actions of Paul in the book of Acts. I'm thinking it's a corner of the first literal analysis. Um, I see that, no, I don't. I, don't. I see that the, the book of Acts as, a, as a, as Luke's effort, yes, based on certain traditions, to put together uh, 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 his theology and his uh, understanding of, of what, is hap what happened in the community. But thanks, thanks for pointing that out. Do you see or have you seen, uh, either out of your own tradition 
Well, um, no, that, thank you. I, I think that, um, again, going back to the congregations I experienced growing up, where the person who was the factory worker out in the world is now uh, the accountant of the church. Uh, the person who uh, 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 is a laborer uh, is a, a, a Sunday school teacher because the resources are limited. Yet here they have an opportunity within the congregation to exercise uh, leadership, broadly construed, uh, and because the necessity is there. And uh, they uh, uh, have an opportunity to have in-house training. They are apprenticed into these kinds of positions. And therefore, uh, in that charismatic, uh, immediate uh, community, they are leaders. And they feel that God has called them to leadership. Now, later on, they're going to pick up the training that they need. Uh, uh, and and they make mistakes in doing this. I mean, we see plenty of mistakes uh, in, in these communities that Paul uh, is ministering to. So it's not that this is the perfect answer to the need for charismatic uh, communities to have uh, local leadership emerge from the grassroots up. But I've seen it again and again, mostly in communities that is not as well, well resourced or newer immigrant communities, these are places that uh, the leadership emerged from the bottom up. And what I'm suggesting is that in that first generation, that first generation of earliest Christianity, Pauline and otherwise, it is this kind of charismatic stage of leadership that emerges irregardless of their status in the, in, in the empire. They're not too many. I mean, you got a Phoebe, you got maybe Erastus in, in Corinth, uh, who have positions of power or, or resources outside in the Greco-Roman world. But inside the community, uh, Paul is trying to say uh, there are others who can exercise leadership here, regardless of what their, what their status is outside in the world. Onesimus is another example of someone who can uh, begin to grow in, in, in a role uh, that normally a slave, especially a runaway slave, might not have. I think Paul is opening up avenues for the service that Onesimus can give. Please. Yeah, if I'm not mistaken, that's the the the, um, the text toward the end where I talk about uh, why why is it that Paul is emphasizing this approach to leadership, and I suggest uh, two passages, and maybe the one one stayed off of the uh, the Spanish list for you know because cutting and pasting. But my point there was here is Jesus pouring himself out. As becoming a servant, 
for the good of the community, Philippians uh, 2, 5 to 11. Uh, and here's Paul saying, Galatians 1, uh, 2, 19 to 22, uh, uh, the, 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 the pouring out of Jesus, the cross of Jesus, becomes a model for the necessity of us all, including the leaders, to live cruciform lives, lives willing to, to sacrifice uh, for, so Jesus is the example for the good of the community. So Jesus is an example uh, for uh, leaders to put themselves out there, uh, pour themselves out into the community, and those two passages, Philippians 2, the emptying himself, and Galatians 2.19, uh, uh, the life I now live, I live uh, because Jesus died for me, paraphrasing. So is that the two, uh, those are the two texts that I meant to include there. They might have got it in the English, but not the Spanish. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Dr. Agosto, I want to uh, thank you for sharing your thoughts with us and your, and your passion. Mm -hmm. uh, excellent discussion also on discontinuity and continuity between Paul and his communities. I suppose we could have the same discussion about Jesus and Paul, mm -hmm. or Jesus and us. Uh, I thank you very much also for coming uh, and being here with us tonight. Uh, let's uh, once again thank, thank Dr. Agosto. Thank you. Thank you all very much. Thank you. We have some refreshments outside, so please stick around and say hi to Dr. Agosto. <laughs>